listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. Check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. So John chapter 4, verses 1 through 15, in our Life in His Name series. When I used to play uh, old man half-court basketball, downtown at the Y, I wasn't the old man. I was like the, the young child because I was playing with guys from their 50s to their 70s. But there was this older gentleman named Rich who's in his 70s, still plays three-on-three basketball tournaments all over the country. He is good. He can school 18-year-olds, and it's funny to watch. But he would, he would talk to me about these trips he would take. He'd always go out west. He would go to the Grand Canyon. He'd go to Arizona, all these different places, and he would hike. But he talked about one of these times when he went to the Grand Canyon, how he had to learn that the heat in Arizona or down in the canyon would be so intense and there's such a a low humidity in that area that it would literally absorb the sweat off of his body, right? So you wouldn't really know that you're sweating because the heat is so intense. And at times it would kind of trick him to thinking, okay, well, you don't need to drink any water because you're not really losing any water. But if anyone knows anything, you can get a heat stroke. Like when you stop sweating, you need to go to the hospital right away (laughs) and because you're on the verge of heat stroke. And so Rich would talk about that, that even if he wasn't sweating or it didn't appear that he was sweating, he was, it was just evaporating, he would need to continue drinking water in order to survive. In today's story, we're going to see two thirsty individuals coming to a well to fetch water. And they're both going to come to the well, fetching water for drinking. And we're going to see these two people, Jesus and an unnamed Samaritan woman. Jesus will come to the well, wearied, exhausted from a long journey from near Jerusalem, Judea, all the way up to Galilee, about a hundred mile trek. The woman comes, not after a long, exhaustive journey, but just in a normal routine of gathering water for living. But it's going to become obvious, it's going to become apparent that between the two of them, one of them is in desperate need of water more than the other. The question is, which water is it? And so like my friend Rich speaking about the signs of thirst, not coming through perspiration, if you will, so this woman approaches a well full of water, not realizing that her soul is desperately depleted of living waters. So Jesus, really in this divine appointment, comes to the well, and He comes with a divine agenda, and that agenda is what we can see in Jeremiah thirty-one twenty-five, which says, God says, For I will satisfy the weary soul, And every languishing soul I will replenish. And so Jesus comes bringing living water for the thirsty soul. Living water for the thirsty soul. And so let me read chapter 4 verses 1 through 15. We're going to break down this story in a a couple of sermons. So we're just going to get into the first part of it today. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. 
Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his, his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he, came, as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, or high noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and the life, his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or or have to come here to draw water. Father, I pray that your word would be plain, understood. Father, that it would change our hearts. That it would keep us thirsty for living waters. Be with me now, just a mere man, serving to preach your word. Power me by your spirit. Power us by your spirit to hear and understand. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Living water for a thirsty soul. So I'm breaking this down in a couple different ways. In verses 1 through 6, we're going to see well water for a wearied Jesus, verses 1 through 6, well water for a wearied Jesus, and then verses 7 through 15, living water for a thirsty soul. 7 through 15, living water for a thirsty soul. And no, this wasn't an added effect. I'm just legitimately thirsty. 1 through 6, well water for a wearied Jesus. So to kind of walk through the passage again. So now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard what Jesus was doing, he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus wasn't doing the baptizing, it was his disciples. You remember last week, John the Baptist was having a conversation with his disciples and another Jew who had questions about his baptism in conjunction with perhaps the laws of purification. And they brought to John's attention, hey, this other guy down here that you baptized, he's now attracting more people to him to be baptized than you are. Doesn't that seem like a problem? That's the pretty much the undertone of the questioning. John the Baptist replies, in short, that's not an issue at all. In fact, that's what is supposed to happen. I am supposed to lead the way, to prepare the way 
for the Messiah to come. And he has come. And now all are going to him. All eyes are on him. He is now becoming in focus. So therefore, I must decrease and he must increase. And so here we begin to see more footnote of that situation. Jesus is down in Judea near Jerusalem because that's where he was. Remember, he went to the temple and, you know, flipped the tables and everything. So he's down there, but he's not actually doing the baptism. He's leading his disciples to do the baptism, kind of like we saw today. Jesus isn't going to be the one who does it. He's teaching them, which again is why in Matthew 28, when we get to the Great Commission, it doesn't shock the disciples that part of their responsibility is to go and make disciples and to disciple. They've already been practicing it. They're preaching repentance. And so Jesus is leading them to do this practice, to make disciples. But there's these crew of people, Pharisees, They've already caught wind of John the Baptist. John the Baptist and the Pharisees seem to have gone off maybe to a kind of a rough start. I mean, perhaps when you're called brood of vipers by John the Baptist, you don't tend to really be like, like being called that. You might become a little agitated or frustrated. Or perhaps if you're Herod and you're called out for your adultery by John the Baptist, you might want to kill him, right? And so John the Baptist and the Pharisees weren't exactly buddies. They weren't exactly pals. And so now the Pharisees are catching wind that one of the guys that John baptized is now baptizing and making more disciples. And look, Jesus isn't exactly popular either. He went into the temple and he started flipping tables. Why? Because they made that house of worship and prayer into a den of robbers, essentially robbing the Gentiles of opportunity to pray in the outer courts. The Pharisees are not happy with J.B., And the Pharisees are not happy with Jesus. They are after him. And so Jesus isn't running here. He's not running away, but he's moving away from this so that he can continue on in the mission that he was called to do. So he left Judea. He departed again for Galilee. So he went from the south back up to the the north where John the Baptist was. And he had to pass through Samaria, verse 4. Notice that language says he had to pass through Samaria. Well, did he really have to pass through Samaria? And the answer is no. He could have gone the Transjordan route. He could have avoided Samaria completely. He could have gone by way of the Mediterranean, or he could have gone through Samaria. He had three options. And Jews of the day would always take the longer, more difficult route away from Samaria to avoid Samaria, to avoid everybody in Samaria, to avoid touching anything in the region of Samaria. But I think this is something more divine here. This is a divine appointment. Jesus had to go to Samaria because it was part of the mission. Because he has to interact and intersect with a woman at a well. And so he passes through Samaria. And so... He came to a town in Samaria. And so with this Samaria, let me just give a summation of the history. Whenever King David came into power, you had one kingdom, right? And then after him, Solomon, you still had one kingdom. And after Solomon, you see that the kingdom was divided. You had ten tribes to the north. You had two tribes to the south. So the north was Israel and the south was Judah. So 
a people who were one people who came out of Egypt are now a divided people. So you have a divided kingdom. And so what you see during that is hostility between the two nations. And in the time of northern Israel, there was never a good king. They were always wicked. They were always evil. And then you begin to see prophets coming into play here and prophesying against the north. People like Isaiah warning the north, if you keep this up, an enemy is going to come and overtake you. Well, that's exactly what happened. In 722 BC, the Assyrians came in and captured the north. Judah to the south was not yet captured, but Assyria to the, or Assyria captured the north. And so then what they did was they took some of those Jews in the north, the ones that seemed to be of good worth or value, and deported them off into whatever camps or regions of Assyria. And the ones that didn't really mean much or amount to much of anything were left in the northern area. And it was those people who were left in northern Israel that the Assyrians came in and blended themselves with. That didn't make sense. That sentence was wrong. We'll move on. And so they came in and you began to see really a mixing of Israelites and a mixing of Assyrians. And after the exile, so fast forward some more, after the Babylonians end up coming in and capturing and then the exiles eventually return, what you have is really this turning up of the nose. Because what happened was this area of in the north became Samaria. This colonized area of Assyrians coming in and mixing with the Jews and marrying and having offspring that were half Jew and half Assyrian and then beginning to mingle their religious beliefs and creating these pseudo-pagan Jewish ideologies and practices. And so the Jews who came back in longing for their land again turned their noses up to the Samaritans. And D.A. Carson puts it well. They viewed the Samaritans as racial half-breeds whose religion was tainted by various unacceptable elements. There was a lot of animosity. There was a lot of hatred on every level. Racial, spiritual, economic, it didn't matter. It was hatred to the core. And these Samaritans, in their own religious practices and beliefs, what they began to do was in their mixing of paganism and also Judaism, they said, hey, our Bible is only the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This is where we're going to believe. And we don't believe that Jerusalem is the place where the temple ought to be, but we believe where God is going to build His temple is up here in the north, on Mount Gerizim. And this Mount Gerizim is something that was promised to Moses. When you get into the land, you're going to establish a, a, a mountain of blessing called Gerizim and a mountain for cursing called Mount Ebal. And so the Samaritans, kind of out of competition with the Jews, saying, oh, you think you're God's people. We think we're God's people. Oh, you're going to build a temple? Watch us. We're going to build a temple in the north. And so in 400 B.C., the Samaritans built a temple. To this day, in Samaria, you can still see the ruins of that temple. It was destroyed in uh, the first century B.C. But there was something unique that made the Samaritans and even the Jews have something in common. 
They were both waiting for a Messiah. The Samaritan messianic passages of the Old Testament, one of them comes from uh, Numbers chapter 24, verse 7, when it says that water shall flow from his buckets, talking about the Messiah. The Messiah will have buckets and water shall flow from his buckets and his seed shall be in many waters. His king shall be higher than Agag and his kingdom shall be exalted. You see, in the first five books of the Bible, we know that there's going to be a prophet greater than Moses who would come. That was a picture that was constantly painted. And even here, messianic overtones in Numbers 24. Hey, this Messiah is going to come with overflowing water. But unfortunately, they stopped after book five and didn't continue on. So they became very short-sighted. And so... The Samaritan people had this pseudo-Judaic belief which just rubbed the Jews wrong. And they didn't want anything to do with them. They were dirty, unclean people mixed with foreigners. No, No way is a Jew supposed to interact with Samaritans. I would even say they would consider Samaritans less than Gentiles. Because they would choose rather to go the Transjordan route, walk along the river in Gentile territory, and come back in to the north, as opposed to walking through Samaritan land. And so they came to a town, Jesus did, in Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. This goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 48, when Jacob would bless his son Joseph promising him some land. And we don't have an explicit telling of this well being built, but obviously it was built. And so this land was given to Joseph. And if you remember the story of Joseph, Joseph is the one who helped save his people, right? He delivered them. But at the very end of his life, right before he died, what did he instruct them to do? to carry his bones into the promised land, right? So we see that again. So we see them taking the bones in Genesis 50 and then carrying them with them into the exile. So right before the sea is parted, Moses is like, hey, make sure and grab the bones of Joseph, which is a little strange, but they grab the bones of Joseph. They cross the Red Sea into the promised land. And the next time we see the story of the bones of Joseph isn't again until Joshua, But unfortunately for the Samaritans, they stop in the fifth book right before Joshua. Why is this significant? This location where Jesus is meeting the woman nearby is the burial place of Joseph. Just down the road is Mount Gerizim where the temple used to be built, the Samaritan temple. And next week when we get into the aspect of worship... And Jesus Jesus says, neither on this mountain or on that mountain will I be worshipped. Speaking of Mount Gerizim and speaking of Mount Jerusalem, but he's talking about the worship that will take place anywhere throughout the world. And so really, they're sitting in this place of blessing. It's almost like the answer's right there underneath her nose. What Jacob was pointing to, who Jacob was pointing to, who Joseph was pointing to, like if Joseph's bones could scream from the ground, it would tell the Samaritan woman, he's the one. He's the one. And so where they're standing is very sacred. So Jesus shows up wearied as he was from his journey. 
He traveled over 20 hours by foot. It's about a 100-mile journey from where he was to where he is now. So 20-plus hours walking. And so this word wearied has the idea of really sweating to the point of exhaustion, just being completely fatigued in every single way. And so he came down and probably just fell beside the well. But what we see here is Jesus' humanity on full display. Jesus is fully God. We know this from John chapter 1. right? The Word became flesh. At this point, Jesus could just ride that train and be like, you know what, angels, just carry me on up to Samaria. But He doesn't. He spends 20 plus hours in the heat of the day walking all the way up, taking on the fullness of His humanity. So in every way, He was made like us, except without sin. And it was about the sixth hour. It was high noon. It was hot. There's also, if you guys remember when we were talking about Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to Jesus at what time? At the night. He came to Jesus at night. And this is a theme you see through the book of John. Darkness and light. Jesus, the light of the world. Darkness often representing sinfulness or blindedness to the things of God. And so Nicodemus, here's here's the theological disparity, if you will. You have Nicodemus, this highly qualified teacher, who is named by name, Nicodemus. And he comes seeking after Jesus. But he does so, not in the middle of the day, but he does it at night. And by contrast, we have a woman, a nameless woman of Samaria, an outcast we will see in a moment, uneducated really in the scriptures, unapproachable by societal standards. She's not seeking Jesus. She's coming to the well to get water. She's not looking for Jesus. She has no idea who he even is. But it is Jesus who approaches her right in the middle of of the day, in the light. So in the night, Nicodemus could not see right before him the light of the world. And in the heat of the day, the woman will not be able to see that Jesus is the living waters. Both the woman and Nicodemus are blind. And both of them need Jesus equally. And so from this, I was just trying to think, man, how do we... How do we apply this? Where do we go with this? This is the first time we're seeing Jesus in his ministry in John's gospel. What it is he actually has come to do. And John's thesis in chapter 20 is that Jesus has come so that we might have life in his name. This is the purpose. And so we begin to see Jesus initially here in his ministry coming and evangelizing. The goal is that this woman would have life. And life in his name. So perhaps some lessons in evangelism are in order. And so this is how I thought. So here's some lessons. First one is, you and I have been placed on a divine appointment by God to reach the lost. You and I have been placed on a divine appointment by God to reach the lost. As disciples of Jesus, we have to be careful to not take for granted those divine appointments that Lord has given us to share the gospel with the lost. 
Right? I think there's been an overcorrection in church life to be more missional, meaning allowing us to go into harder places, to go into bars, to go into strip clubs, to go on the streets, to go where it's really difficult, to go into countries where we could potentially be killed. But once we get into those spaces, one of the most difficult things for us to do is, okay, so now what? What do I say here? Like, I've, I've made it in, but now what? We have to grow in an an actual desire and a heart for reaching the lost, going into the hard places, the places no one else wants to go, and actually opening our mouths and sharing with them the good news. I hope you all have lost friends or family around you. Not that I want them lost, but I'm hoping that you're not separating yourself, if you understand what I'm saying. And if you have lost people in your life, It is your responsibility as an ambassador for Christ to share the good news with them. If not, you're just withholding living waters. It's like watching a child who is dying of thirst while you're holding a bottle of water and going, sorry. That's the equivalency. But God has orchestrated that we would cross paths with people so that we can share with them The good news. This is why Jesus wasn't doing the baptizing. He was saying, you are going to do it and you will be empowered by my Holy Spirit. The Father is working through you. Secondly, you and I are to remain humble, showing the lost world that we struggle. Jesus didn't come to the well all high and mighty. He didn't come in as the holy man, kiss my ring kind of attitude. He came in lowly, weary, tired, desperately thirsty. You and I are not the Lord. I get that. But sometimes the world perceives us as people that think we're higher or above other people. And we must not be that. We must show the world, yeah, I'm a sinner. I struggle. I have a capacity. I can only go so far physically. I can only go so far mentally. I can only go so far emotionally or spiritually. I am capped because I'm a human being and I need the Lord. So we need to be relatable with the lost world. Because remember, you and I were dead in our sins at one point. And then somebody had brought the gospel to us and related to us. And third, we have to be willing to count the cost of being seen among the lost. We have to count the cost of being seen among the lost. Look, there are societal rejects out there. There are outcasts. There are people who are like, oh, I don't want to be around them. I could even tell in the testimony this morning, you're kind of feeling that shame of like, I don't want... Look, we have no shame in calling you brother. Zero shame. All of us have been shackled to some degree or another, enslaved to sin. All of us have been dirtied by our own pride and, and ego. But Christ is not ashamed to come to us. And so we must not be ashamed to engage the lost. Are there people in your world, in your life, that you're unwilling to engage? You have so much hatred like built up against them. I mean, just think about 2020. Who were the people you hated the most in 2020? Because I know everybody hated somebody. And are you willing to be seen or associated with them? Or are you thinking, man, I don't want to be embarrassed because then it would look like I'm a a hypocrite. 
What are you ashamed of? Who are you ashamed of? But do we have compassion towards the lost? It doesn't say it here in the text. It doesn't say that Jesus had compassion for her. But there's many times over in the gospel when Jesus, in the gospels, when Jesus approached sinners, he had compassion for them. And it shows in his words, in his character, the way he's interacting with her, that he has compassion for this woman. He is not embarrassed by her. He is not ashamed of her. But he is engaging So are you willing to look past the disgrace that the world would give you in order to enter into a relationship with those who would be deemed unclean or evil? So Jesus comes to the well, wearied, thirsty for water, and thirsty for the water that only the well can really provide here. But little does the woman know that though she comes to the well, not wearied or exhausted, It is her soul that Jesus finds to be thirsty and in need of living waters. Verses 7 through 15, living water for a thirsty soul. So 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Here's the divine appointment, the intersection of the two. This is a nameless woman. Again, nobody knows about her. Nobody knows her story. Nobody knows anything, right? That's a really encouraged Encouraging message for Mother's Day, right? This nameless woman. Happy Mother's Day. But this is the way that we're seeing this. There's societal contrast here. Women, uh, excuse me, Samaritan women in this time were considered unclean from birth. Not sometime later if they did something that would be worthy of being considered unclean, but from birth considered unclean, unworthy to be around. It would be essentially against the law for a Jewish man to have any sort of conversation with such an unclean person. Women were societal outcasts. When women would come to the Samaritan women would come to the wells, they wouldn't come in the middle of the day. They would come at the evening time, usually in groups of women at a time different from men. But in this case, there's obviously something different here. This woman is not coming with other women in the evening. She's coming in the middle of the day. And we'll be able to see that this next week. And it's most likely because she is a social outcast. She has had multiple husbands. And this last man that she's with is not her husband. She's most likely an adulterer. Somebody who has been cast out, not only by the men, but even the women of society. She is all by herself. She is, shall I say, the scum of the earth in this story. So Jesus then said to her, give me a drink. He doesn't come with a bucket and rope. It's it's supposedly said that this well is about 100 feet deep or so. So you would have to have some means to doing that. It's not just there. This woman has it. So Jesus breaks that societal barrier and asks the woman for help. And he does this. Why? Because the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So on two accounts, Jesus has broken societal laws. Not only has he asked a woman for a drink, but now he has asked his disciples to go and buy food in Samaria. Another unclean act. Another thing you don't do. 
right? If you're just if you're heading through Samaria, you just lock the doors and roll up the windows, and you just hang on until you get through Samaria, and then go out to eat after you pass through Samaria. But not in this case. But this also highlights the divine appointment. Had the disciples not gone, Jesus wouldn't have had this opportunity to ask the woman to fetch water because the disciples would have done it for him. This is a divine appointment. And so then the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me? Like she knows her shame. She knows her position in society in this moment. So why is it that you're asking me for water? A woman of Samaria. And Jesus answered her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living, living water. And notice when he answered Jesus, he didn't belittle her. He didn't tell her, hey, just be quiet and get me water. You don't, don't tell anybody that we interacted here because nobody needs to know that a Jew had interacted with you, a filthy Samaritan woman. He doesn't do that. He speaks gently and he already knows her. We know this, and we'll know this next week when you get further on. He knows this woman and she has never met him before. He already knows what is necessary for her heart, for her soul. If you knew the gift of God, this gift being the gift of salvation, through the Word made flesh, through the Son of Man, the light of the world, this is the gift of God. This is grace given to the world. Because remember, when Jesus came, some rejected Him. His own people rejected Him. But there were some who did not, but received Him and believed upon in His name. And this is going to be the hope here, that this Samaritan woman, she will receive Him. She will believe in Him. But if you knew the gift of God, you would have asked Him, and He would have given you living waters. She doesn't understand the Scripture. She doesn't understand who the Messiah is supposed to be. If the woman understood who He was, even while He was fatigued and thirsty from His long journey, let's assume He doesn't even have water at this point, she would have shown greater desperation for living waters than for Jesus' desperate thirst for well water. Jesus is saying, I'm coming here thirsty and I need this well water. But if you understood who I was, you wouldn't have even allowed me to speak. You would have said, give me your living waters. You would have been more desperate for me than I am for this water that's coming out of the well. But she was blind. Blind to the Messiah right in front of her. Blind to His Word. Had she just paid attention or been able to go past even the first five books of the Bible and understand, we see Jesus in the first five books of the Bible, but as you continue on all the way to the book of Malachi, it becomes more and more clear. Listen to Isaiah 12, 2-6. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation, and you will say in that day, Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy 
O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. But she doesn't know that. She doesn't even know the scripture. She doesn't even understand that in some way she is going to be a fulfillment of this passage in that verse 39 is coming. And what happens in verse 39? You can go ahead and take a peek. She is going to be the one who's responsible for so many in Samaria coming to faith in Jesus. She's going to be the one who's going out and proclaiming his name among the nations, exalting Jesus. Because she will eventually find the living waters and drink deeply. But for right now, verse 11, she says to Jesus, Okay, that's weird. Don't know why you would say that to me, but you, you have nothing to draw water with, Jesus, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Like it just went completely over her head, right? She misses the point. It's, it's absurdity of what she's hearing. And so then she goes further. Well, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So again, she's thinking in earthly terms, talking about living waters. Well, I mean, Jacob dug this well centuries ago, and it's been flowing constantly. And just as a side note, the well still exists today and is still flowing water. You can still drop a bucket down and pull up water because there's a, a, a spring that is flowing in this well. So she's sitting here saying, well, there's water that's constantly going, and people have lived off of this for generations. Even the livestock have lived off this for generations. She's still thinking in earthly terms. But Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, this well water, they will be thirsty again. So Jesus kind of shifts a little bit, focusing on where she would be understanding, understanding that she's only thinking in earthly terms. And so he shifts the imagery to a more sustaining of life, a forever or eternal quenching of a thirsty soul. So he goes from the realm of just the physical now into the spiritual. This water that Jesus would provide is about a greater hope, a greater water of which even Jacob was pointing to, of which Joseph was longing for. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. This is the water of regeneration. You see this theme, we've talked about water for quite some time in the Gospel of John here. This imagery here, this picture of the washing away of sin. But in the case of the conversation with Nicodemus, that one must be born of water and spirit is the idea of somebody's heart being washed and cleansed by God or regenerated, made new. And that is the same imagery here. Jesus isn't talking about draw a cup of water from the well and if you drink it, then you'll be saved. But what he's talking about is completely changed and washed over heart, changed by the living waters of God. The water I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The spring of, the spring of water that Jesus gives Wells up to eternal life. It never runs dry. It never leaves anyone uh, dry in their throat or ever thirsty. Your thirst will always be quenched. We're speaking spiritually here. And this is the very promise given 
to the exiles in Isaiah 55.1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. This is the imagery, the beautiful imagery of the gospel that God is not requiring. Jesus is not requiring anything of this woman. He's saying, you can come even as outcast as you are, without any money, without anything, without any hope in the world, and you can come and drink these living waters and you can buy them even though you have no currency to buy them because it's free for you. It's paid for by my own blood. Speaking into the text here, right? But that's what Jesus is ultimately getting at. And the woman doesn't say, oh, now I get it. Now I understand. She says in 15, Sir, give me this water so that I won't be thirsty, so that I don't have to come here to this well and draw more water. (laughs) She still misses it. But there is a level of authenticity here given by the woman of Samaria. She wants what Jesus is offering, though she is as equally blind to what Jesus is saying as Nicodemus was. A religious man, a man who understood the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. And of course, while we're going to stop here in today's sermon, Jesus is not done with this woman in Samaria. In fact, this is one of the longest discourses you see in Jesus' ministry between him and somebody he's evangelizing. This discourse between he and the woman of Samaria is lengthy. And so he wants to take time with her. He is concerned about her. He's concerned about her lack of water more than his own. And so we continue to learn from this in terms of evangelism. Kind of the fourth thing is that we need to consider the needs of others over ourselves. We need to consider the needs of others over our own self. Jesus considered the need of the woman over his own. Yes, he needed a drink of water, but he was more concerned that she would ask him for living waters. That was his main concern. And I don't say, church, that you go and neglect your own health and neglect yourself and just be unwise and just like foolishly give your money left and right to where you don't have any money in the bank kind of thing. But what I'm saying is to always consider the greater need of those who are truly sick, spiritually sick, if you will, above your own self. It took Jesus taking a long 20 plus hour walk to Samaria to speak to this woman. It cost him something. He had to deny himself in some ways. He could have had a a band of angels take him in, right? But he didn't. So what sort of cost are you willing to take in order to share the living water with a lost world? In other words, what is it what is it that you might be saying like I would do anything but what is that but? Or I would go anywhere but I won't go where? Or I would go to anyone but I'm not going to go to them. Well, who's the them? 
we have to consider when we see human beings on the planet, we are looking in the face at people who are made in the image and the likeness of God. Men and women who without Christ will go to hell and suffer for all eternity. We must not get, you know, just constantly frazzled because their political beliefs or their personal beliefs somehow rub us the wrong way. We have to understand lost people do what lost people do. It shouldn't throw us off that Washington, D.C. does the things that Washington, D.C. does. When you have a a lot of non-believers doing things, I'm just speaking more in a public forum here, when lost people do things, they do things that are not in line with the will of God. They're not doing things for the glory of Christ. They're not doing those things for the kingdom. And you and I without Christ would be doing the same exact thing. So we must consider others over our own selves. Five, do not be ashamed to be a friend of sinners. Don't be ashamed to be a friend of sinners. That kind of goes in line with what I just said. Jesus was not ashamed to be seen with us, to be associated with us, social outcasts, maybe someone who's not even given a name. He was not ashamed of this woman. And are there sinners out there that you're ashamed to even come around? They just make your blood boil. You don't even want to be near them. And last, give others the right sort of water. Living water is greater than well water. Give people living water. If you're going to give a cup of water to somebody to quench their thirst, give it to them. But also give them living water. Are you thirsty for what Jesus offers? Are you thirsty for what He offers? Consider this last year when we're talking about giving living water. There's a ton, ton of anxiety about health in the world, right? And it's still there. And we all get it. We see it every day. We feel it. Consider the number of hours most of us have spent researching things like masks or viruses or medical opinions. And how many hours worth of time there has been in discussing the matters how much ink has been spilt forming arguments and opinions over the matter. And look, it's not all worthless stuff. It can be really good stuff. But how many hours and how much ink has been spent thinking, reading, writing, discussing living waters? We may know more about things that don't matter in the realm of eternity than we do the things that do matter in the realm of eternity. Like we may spend more time trying to convince somebody of a political position or opinion or a medical position or opinion than we will ever in trying to persuade them to come to the living waters, which is Christ. We often are more ashamed of our own Savior than anything. And so in some ways, this is a light rebuke. I'm not saying don't pay attention to those things that are going on around us, but my goodness, it's not a a substitute for the gospel. If people survive COVID or people survive race wars or people survive these, whatever's going on in society, but die without Jesus, it doesn't matter. They go to hell for eternity. They will be punished for their sins. 
And why aren't we on the front lines telling them about Christ? It's possible that we just may be helping and easing them straight into hell. But we have the living water. We have it. We know who Jesus is. He's opened our eyes. He's washed over our hearts. He's changed us. He's given us reason to live. He's given us hope. He has come to us. Outcasts. Sinners. People not worthy to be touched or even seen. And He has shared with us Himself. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. We must then go out and do the same in this community and among the nations. We have to go and be the bearers of this good news This must be the thing that is constantly on the edge of our lips, on our tongue. This must be the thing that we write about, speak about, talk about, breathe about in every single way. Because without Christ, there is no hope in the world. This is who we must be. The world around us thinks it's not in any sort of need of some sort of spiritual hydration. They don't seem to be thinking that they're actually sweating. They're walking in the heat of the sun and it's just evaporating. They're like, no, I'm good. But that's the sign of looming danger, is it not? Right before a heat stroke. My friend knew, my friend Rich, he knew just because he didn't see the sweat, it didn't mean that he was okay. (laughs) He needed to drink water so he wouldn't slip into a heat stroke and possibly die. The world around us is on the brink of slipping into an eternal heat stroke if they do not drink up the living waters provided only by Christ. They think they're fine. They think they're okay. Everything's good. God's happy with them. It's not true. Without Christ, there's pending judgment. And so church, it's our calling, our responsibility to share with the world this much needed drink of water. Well water may have been what Jesus needed for his weary body, but living waters is what the sinner needs for the weary soul. 